0: This is an AMI podcast. You're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast with Chef Mary Mammalivi.
1: I really do love to cook. I like it because it's sort of a way of taking care of people. And food is what is common across every culture in the world. And in every culture, people share meals together. And it means something to people, and different foods are comforting to different people for different reasons.
0: That's Jess Agnew. She's a PhD candidate at Virginia Tech, studying ways to bring nutrition and sustainability to developing communities worldwide. But her big heart for development started right at home in the kitchen. Jess, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. And I'm going to dive right in. What was the first recipe you can remember making?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Actually, pancakes was our, our family Saturday morning tradition. And my dad likes to make them from scratch. And so it was actually with my dad, the first memory I have um, learning how to make pancakes and, you know, standing on a chair and mixing them up from scratch. And,
0: oh, that's great. Yeah. Anything in them or just plain pancakes,
1: buttermilk? Uh, just plain pancakes. The the secret ingredient we always put in is vanilla, but does really make a little difference. It does. I think my dad thought he was so clever, but I think it. Just, I think all people put vanilla in, but he was <laughs> he was convinced that it was the secret ingredient. <laughs> I love that you've spent
0: time in almost every position in a kitchen, from prep, plating, hosting, line chef, catering. List goes on. Mm-hmm. What were your biggest milestones coming up as a chef?
1: I first started working in a formal restaurant kitchen at Moxie's in Newmarket. And uh, I started as a prep cook and um, that was really interesting. I learned a lot about just what all goes into the food that we eat in restaurants, but we were short um, on kitchen staff and they asked me to fill in on a Friday night line service. And yeah, just the adrenaline rush, and I just found this groove of you know preparing. I think I started in the cold end, so I was doing like salads and things like mm-hmm. that. But just finding this groove as the chits are just you know pouring in, and and really enjoying that rhythm, and also just being good at it. So that was kind of the first moment where I thought, you know, maybe I could make a career out of this, and. Um, the other, I think would be working, um, as expo. So like you said, plating, and again, there's just this rhythm to it. And, you know, you're coordinating the entire kitchen and making sure that food goes out looking nice and on time and to the right tables. And again, just finding that rhythm. I really enjoyed that, that adrenaline rush. Um, when you just, everything's just flowing, it's kind of like a symphony almost. I mean, for people who don't know what goes Mm -hmm. on in a kitchen in a restaurant,
0: very busy restaurant. So you've got your different stations, your different um, prep
1: areas. Can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. So it kind of depends on the restaurant you're at and how big it is and if it's a sort of a chain restaurant or not. So for example, at Moxie's, there are there's a cold station. So you're doing like salads, desserts, and also like fry, all the fried stuff. So you're making sure there's French fries and wings and all that sort of stuff. And then there would be like a saute station where the pastas are being made. You got a grill station and, um, and then you have the prep cooks working in the back. And whereas a different res- restaurant I worked at out in British Columbia it was a very small restaurant. And so we did have one person sort of doing salads and desserts, but mm-hmm. then you pretty much did everything else. Um, but we only had one or two chefs in the kitchen at that point. So, and I would say like at Moxie's or like a chain kitchen, you're kind of more of a cook, like you're just heating up ingredients. Whereas at a small, this other restaurant I worked at, you're actually like cooking more. So um, yes. you kind of are doing all the things as opposed to just assembling ingredients that have already been prepped. Do you have a favorite station? that you worked at? Um, I did. I actually did like doing prep. Um, I found it like you could just kind of do your own thing and it was was soothing and you're in there before anybody else is. And there's like a smell to a kitchen when there's like nobody else in it. I don't know if it's a good smell or not, but it's like a comfort (laughs) smell.
0: (laughs) Let's play a quick game of this or that.
1: The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that.
0: Eggs, do you You prefer fried or or scrambled? Fried, Juice or water? I think water. Now with your bread, white or wheat?
1: White. Give me that white bread every time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Corn or peas? Peas. Okay, this one's really interesting. Water on in your toothbrush before toothpaste or after?
1: Oh, before. Right? Yeah.
0: I don't get the after.
1: No, I don't either.
0: Clean cups. Do you put them right side up or upside down?
1: Upside down.
0: Android or iOS? books or ebooks books
1: Books. like i like to hold them in your hand and turn the page
0: (laughs) was there a recipe that took you the longest to perfect
1: oh that's a good question um yes and i'm still trying to work on perfecting it and it's like uh danishes or pastries um trying to learn a lot about like the different doughs and how you use like the butter and how you fold it in and everything like that. So that is something that is taking me the longest and I'm still working on trying to perfect. What's the part that you get stuck on? It's so when you're making the, so you prepare the dough, which is fine and you knead it and everything and you let it um, rise in the fridge. So you let it just sit there overnight. So that's fine but you have to do this thing where you like make a butter sheet essentially like this slab of butter and then you have to fold it into the dough and you have to keep turning it. So you like fold in the butter and, you know, kind of wrap it up like an envelope Mm -hmm. and then you have to keep folding it. But if the actual dough rips, then the butter like leaks out basically. And then that affects the quality of the pastry dough that you're using for your Danish. It's not like the end of the world, but like I said, it's something I'm trying to perfect. So perfecting it is is tricky. See that for me right there. As soon as that thing
0: would tear, I would just combine it all in one big giant Danish. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah <it's>, have- <laughs> all these like little layers. And so you're trying to get that like flakiness and the crust, but the, I w- had been trying a while ago to try to to do the these danishes but then and croissants but it's it's hard to do at home without the right kind of tools but I've been watching the British the great British baking show and oh yeah I've been re-inspired to to, to pick this back up again my friends are very happy that I have decided to try <laughs> of course yeah
0: <laughs> as I would be hopefully we we'll live close to each other and then I'll pop over and pick one up yeah <laughs> perfect <laughs> next time I'm home I'll have to send
1: them with that
0: yeah Um, that brings me to your signature dish. What would be your signature dish? And what would you pair that with? Oh,
1: I love to make pasta. I when I worked at the restaurant in British Columbia, I really learned how to do it and do it well. And I worked with this chef and she was phenomenal like at her at taste combinations and, and just assembling things. So I, I learned a lot from her and and she taught me how to make a really good cream sauce. And so I love making pasta with a cream sauce, usually like white wine cream base, and then just varying the different combinations. But I think my favorite like variation that I made was beef tenderloin in it. but then the actual cream sauce I put orange zest, a little bit of orange juice, saffron, and white wine, and a lot of cracked black pepper. And it was very good. Oh my gosh, that sounds good. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) But then with the beef tenderloin in there and with that, that saltiness cutting with the sweet and the, the fragrance of the saffron, Mm -hmm. it was, it was excellent. (laughs) Oh, I'm so going to try this. And then I think I just I think we had a red wine with it because of the the beef, but you could also do like a light white wine with it as well. When you're starting your cream sauce, mm-hmm.
0: do you start with a little bit of onion, Always. butter? <laughs> Always, right? Yeah. yeah. And you're using butter. Oh, yes. Well, sometimes olive oil,
1: but it's so much better. I mean, it's great. It's great with the olive oil, but yeah. that butter. The butter, I know. And then you got the cream in there. You know, I, I think I made it for my parents and you know my dad who has- some hereditary high cholesterol issues was like, this is definitely worth a heart attack.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you, I'm hearing about it. I'm just listening to what you're putting in it. And I'm drooling. I (laughs) I never would have thought to add orange zest.
1: It, I just, it brings it up. It was really, it was really quite good. Oh, that sounds great. What about your kitchen hacks?
0: What's your favorite kitchen hack?
1: I think it's with cutting an onion so you basically slice it as if you would any other way but you if you keep the end of it on it basically keeps it all together and then you can then chop it and dice it but the end of the onion is holding it all together so it's not kind of like going anywhere everywhere is that does that make sense
0: it does yeah so basically when you're when you're you keep the end on. So when you're slicing the onion, your, your knife is not actually going all the way to the end. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You're keeping that little half an inch or whatever it is at the end. Yes. I tend to make my own words, those little nib- nibbits. Yes. Uh, right <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And then do you take your knife and slice and, and give it one cut? Like say,
1: no, I'm, I know I can't even describe this. I know it's hard to describe, but like halfway through the onion, yes, you would go like, horizontal through the onion, again, not going all the way to the end. And then yes. you your vertical slices. And then, and then you make all your, you're chopping all the nibbits <laughs> as it Exactly. Yes, exactly. That, that's my favorite. I think also with a green pepper, because you always have the seeds and everything. If you, if you, again, hold your knife vertically and slide it into the pepper, you can cut around the pepper and you're getting like the most amount of pepper without grabbing all those seeds. And it's very, a very clean way to, to cut the pepper but then the seeds aren't going everywhere and all over your cutting board and everything else. I
0: don't know what it is about peppers, but I, I always catch people doing different techniques and cutting peppers. Mm. I was watching Rachel Ray, my kind of cook, cause she just gets right in there. Yeah. And she, sli- she sliced <laughs> she her really and does. she really does. And there's a connection with her food, which I love. And she cuts it in half And then each half, she just tears off the top piece with her hand. Yeah, that's totally (laughs) Rachel Ray's style, (laughs) right? (laughs) I'm Mary Mammoliti, and you're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast. You started university in a food and hospitality program. Mm -hmm. What sparked your shift to policy and development?
1: Well, I really do love to cook. I like it because it's sort of a way of taking care of people. But for me, cooking just wasn't enough of helping people. Um, And so I didn't know that I necessarily needed to do that in my job. But while I was working um, in British Columbia at this restaurant, I realized that I, I did want that from the work I was doing. So I came back to Guelph and I did one more semester in the hospitality management program. And just this one day, I had this idea of sustainable agriculture. I don't know where it came from, but I just started Googling and found this program uh, called Food, Agriculture and Resource Economics at Mm -hmm. Guelph and started looking at the courses you could take. And uh, there are some ones on poverty and economic development. And if you had told me in my first year University that I'd want to be an economist, I would have laughed at you. But (laughs) Mm -hmm. just the the descriptions of the courses and realizing what you can do with food and agriculture in a different way um, just really got my attention. One of the things I found most interesting that I'd never really known before was that in order to be a developed country, you have to have a developed agricultural and food sector, and I never really sort like knew that or saw that Mm -hmm. before. And then once my professor made this point, I thought, that's so true. And for then, then for me, I was sold because it combines my passion for people, food, and business. And um, yeah, I, I just, I love it.
0: You can hear that in your voice. You do, <laughs> you do truly love what you're doing. I really do. You spent a lot of time in Bangladesh communities during your master's program, working with um, Shakti ladies. hmm Tell us what a Shakti lady is and what that project was all about.
1: Sure. So the, the project was in Bangladesh and we worked with a local business called Grameen Danan Foods. And Grameen Danan sells this small cup of yogurt like you would get in the grocery store here that is fortified with vitamin A, iron, zinc, and iodine. And this is because a lot of kids in Bangladesh um, while they're not necessarily hungry because they have a lot of access to rice, they don't get the right kinds of nutrients. And so they suffer from night blindness or other types of diseases that you get from not having the right types of nutrients. So Grameen Nun wanted to create this sort of social business where they would sell the food as opposed to just giving it away, but they would sell it very cheaply so that they could reach sort of the lowest income households. And try to do something for the nutrition of children in rural rural and urban areas of Bangladesh. The Shakti ladies are these women in the community um, surrounding the factory area um, where they've built in rural Bangladesh who uh, purchase the yogurt cups on microcredit and then they go and go door to door with these cooler bags and sell um, the yogurt cups to like I said, low- income families. Mm-hmm. and then they repay their their microcredit loan at the end of every day, and then they keep the profit that they they've made on each of the cups that they've sold. What's really cool about this model is that they also do a lot of um, sensitivity training about women working in the community. And so at the beginning, when they first started working with these ladies, you know there was some resistance, and husbands didn't really love that their wives are doing this and now it's a sense of pride in the community because people recognize that it's a brand name product and they really like that and so husbands are like proud that their wives work for this company and they are like making money and they can also you know use this extra income to buy more things for their kids or their family so it was really interesting to see this this transition and these effects that are not just about nutrition but about the community Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, just the mindset as well. It, does it taste like traditional yogurt? Well, I guess that depends on who you're asking. Cause to me, okay. it's, it is like normal yogurt, you know, Danan, I think we all know the, the yogurt company. We have Danan mm-hmm. yogurt in our grocery stores, but in Bangladesh yogurt, or it's called DOI, D O I in, um, Bengali, um, is more of like a curd or think like, pour, you know, sweetened condensed milk into a clay pot and then bake it. That to them is what yogurt is. And so when they first started selling the yogurt, they called it Shakti Doi. Um, And they had to change the name because people were just like, this isn't, this isn't Doi, this isn't yogurt. Like what Mm -hmm. now they call it Shakti plus. (laughs) And don't try to call it yogurt, (laughs) even though it's yogurt. For a lot of other people in the world, people didn't understand what it was or what it was claiming to be in Bangladesh. And Shakti actually means um, strength or energy in in Bengali. So they picked this name to try to signal to people who may not be able to read um, what exactly the yogurt or the product was, was going to do for them, essentially, as a way to try to convince people to buy it because it was so new. That was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really cool. So they started They started with a basically no market for this product. It was a brand new product. And today, or as of 2014 anyway, they're selling 100,000 cups a day.
0: How long has this project been in place?
1: Um, they started the business in 2006. So working on 12 years now, I guess. It's working, which is really interesting. And so that's why I've continued to do this research into my PhD, um, this idea of how businesses can be involved in nutrition and food, um, food supply chains or value chains for people who have nutritional needs, particularly in low income sort of environments.
0: With your time in Bangladesh, Mm -hmm. what was your most interesting culinary experience
1: one thing I really like that they do there is if you go out to a restaurant to eat with friends or colleagues or whatever, you don't order your own meal. You you order a bunch of different things for the table.
0: And then oh, so it's yeah. family style. Yeah.
1: It's all that's always what you do. You never just order your own meal. And so that's my favorite way uh, to eat. Yeah, oh, it's the best. Because you get to and I got to try so many different things because of that. Like I tried goat. That mm-hmm. was it was like it was all right it was kind of tough but it was it was good to try and different types of fish which was a little concerning because they have an arsenic problem in the water in Bangladesh so I was like maybe I'm not gonna eat that much fish but (laughs) 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 Uh, but the other thing in Bangladesh is they don't um, age their beef so here we you know the cow goes to the mm-hmm. slaughterhouse and then the longer you just like let the cow hang hang out basically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the better it tastes because you get the rigor it. mortar rigor mortis out of it but they don't do that in bangladesh mm, yum you know, it, was like, it was like pretty much like eating shoe leather uh um, no. so i just stuck mostly with chicken but it would i mean the food is incredible in bangladesh i really like food that has like a lot of flavor to it and you could go to like a high-end restaurant or like a hole-in-the-wall place and the food was basically the same because it is it's just like the recipes your mom taught you or or whatever but they oh the food was phenomenal your next
0: big undertaking is a project called buy to thrive Mm -hmm. it's in collaboration with the government of Mozambique Mm -hmm. what's the focus of this one
1: So this is a project that I started and it was, it came out of a nutrition class project, but the idea is that nutrition education is happening constantly more and more. um, Like you said, we're trying to get people to sort of think about what they're eating and why they're eating it and focus on nutrition and how it can play a role in health. And that can be in the U S it can be Canada or in developing countries one of the things I have noticed about nutrition education in developing countries in particular, but also a little bit in, in the Western world as well is that we tell people what they should eat and what's good for them, but then that it kind of stops there. So in developing countries, even sort of like the poorest families will spend a certain amount of money on food. And so if I'm teaching you, so right now in Mozambique, it, there's a really big push on orange flesh sweet potato um, because they have a different kind of potato, the sweet potato that's white. But in the orange flesh kind that we have would have here, there's a lot of vitamin A. And so vitamin A deficiency is really common in Mozambique. So I'm going to tell you that you should you know, grow this sweet potato, feed it to your kids, put it in your bread, put it in your stews, you know, all this. But a lot of the nutrition education doesn't then follow it up with and this is where you find them in the market this is how you tell if the like if the food is safe to eat this is what you should do if you know you can't find it in the market one week this is what you should do if you can't afford it one week you know so there there isn't this education too, about how to engage with the places that they're actually buying their food.
0: And that's a huge step. It's it, it really a huge is. piece of the puzzle to miss out on.
1: Exactly. And so that's why I started or started this initiative called Buy to Thrive, um, to focus on connecting families who do struggle with income fluctuation. You know, it ch- Their income changes a lot from week to week um, and getting them to engage with their their local food market and think about what they're buying and, and how to do it in the best way. Obviously there's like a lot of other factors, but I mean, if you don't have the education to begin with, like you can't make the choices that, that you need to, to make in order to be healthy. I mean, so many of us here in North America, like know what we need to do to be healthy. And like, still, I had German chocolate cake last night. So, you know, oh, that good. it was really good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm all, I'm, I always lead, try to lead a healthy lifestyle, but I do not deprive myself. Yes, yes. Well, you have definitely inspired me to go and do more. And I'm sure anyone who's listening to this will feel the exact same way. Yeah, I your hope energy so. is contagious. Thank you very much. <laughs> this brings us to that time of the episode where I ask
1: you to give us your kitchen confession, Jess. Oh, okay. Uh, several years ago, actually, when I was living in British Columbia, I decided my friend got engaged, and she asked me if I would make her wedding cake. And I thought I can't be too hard. Well, that was a huge mistake. Um, but there was like. Two- <laughs> people coming to this wedding I made this like four layer it was it was ridiculous
0: wait wait let's back up how many
1: people 250 250 okay so I'm like all right I'm gonna make this cake so it was actually going like pretty well and then I was making the the very last layer and I had you know one of these like little four or I think it was a six inch cake pan in the oven And I tried to get it, I had like oven mitts, they were huge oven mitts. Mm -hmm. I tried to get it out, it slipped out of my hand and I don't know how, but it somehow flipped upside down in the oven, (gasps) the cake fell out of the bottom, or like fell out of the the pan into the bottom of the oven and proceeded to ignite. And I was staying with my aunt and uncle, so like there's a cake on fire in the bottom of their oven and I had never lit something (laughs) on fire before so I whatever got baked and put it out but like the whole house just smelled like burnt cake for weeks after that it was brutal actually this is
0: an actual teaching moment because most people would have grabbed water
1: yes I just wasn't sure I again like I'd never lit on fire and I just remember from like food safety courses you know like I didn't want to make it work. I mean I'm sure water would have been fine, but then I didn't want to have to get the water out of the bottom of the oven as well. Exactly. That's why the baking soda. Perfect. Exactly. Exactly. But Perfect. yeah, it was smart. Then I had to start again. <laughs> you poor thing. Oh, yeah. Oh. I think that, That's always the one that kind of comes into my mind on my biggest cooking snafu. All right. So if
0: our listeners want to follow you along, get in touch with you, have questions mm-hmm. about any of these wonderful programs you're working on. Mm-hmm. How can they find you? How can they find your projects?
1: So uh, they can go to www.buy2thrive. So B U Y 2, the number 2, T H R I V E.com. And uh, right now it's just the Mozambique project, but it is on my list of things to do to have a link from there for my own personal blog where they can find out about other Uh, project so that should be up and ready in the next uh, couple weeks or so. Um, My email is on the the website and how to get in touch with me so you can find all my contact information there and yeah through the the Clinton initiative and the fundraising had a lot of people reach out and even if people just want to have a conversation and talk more I always love to just talk and brainstorm and If you have any ideas, thoughts, queries, I always love to to chat with people about this.
0: Jess, again, thank you so much. You were fabulous to talk to. I love what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And it's been really fun to talk with you as well.
0: It's that time we've reached the end of another show. Be sure to visit kitchenconfession.com for more recipes and foodie finds. I'd like to thank producer and editor Matt Agnew, and I'm Mary Mammoliti. See you at the next episode.